Thank you so much. How many of you brought your Bible this morning? Will you hold up the Word of God all over the building? I want to ask you to join me, if you will, back in the book of Isaiah this morning, uh, chapter number 52. Isaiah chapter 52, page 760. If you have an old Schofield Bible, I'd like to read some verses here from this text in just a moment. Then I'll ask you to leave your Bibles open and just follow me along as we kind of make our way through this text this morning. Isaiah chapter 52. Don't forget our service again this afternoon at 5 30. And as I said earlier, I think things will be uh, hopefully all cleared up, ready to go. And I, I pray the Lord will bless our time together here this afternoon at 530. If you're visiting, we invite you to come and be back with us again uh, tonight and this afternoon. And then, of course, we always look forward to our members. Thank you for your faithfulness and for being in the house of God. Isaiah chapter 52. If you're there, would you say amen? amen. All right, I want you to look this way if you will. If you were to check your calendar this morning, you would find three things. Number one, you would find by checking your calendar that we are exactly 35 days away from daylight savings time. 35 days. You only got to, uh, you're getting ready to lose an hour, so you better sleep good over these next 35 days. Number two, you would find that we are 41 days away from spring. Can I have an amen? 41 days from spring. But then number three, you would find out that we're exactly nine Sundays or we are 63 days away from Easter, our celebration of the resurrection of our Savior. And, of course, in these Sunday mornings, if you were here last Sunday, in these Sunday mornings leading up to that, you know that I'm preaching a series of messages that I've entitled, Considering Considering Calvary. You know, as I said last Sunday, there's nothing that I know of that will warm the heart of a cold Christian. And there's nothing that I know of that will heat up the services of a church like considering Calvary. Thinking about and hearing about Calvary. And in these Sunday morning services as we lead up to Easter, I would like for us to linger. I'd like for us to walk around a little bit at the foot of the cross. You know, somebody has once rightly said that we go to Calvary for pardon, but we linger at Calvary for power. And I hope the Lord will bless us in these services going forward. Last Sunday morning, I had you open your Bible to the book of Isaiah, chapter number 53, chapter 52 and chapter 53, as we are considering Calvary. And this morning, what I'd like to do, if you'll bear with me for just a moment, I want to read again back in chapter 52, with verse 13 and following, and read down through verse number 7 of chapter 53. And if you'll bear with me for just a moment, I'd like to do that at this time. Look at verse 13. Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. As many were astonished at thee, his visage was so marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. So shall he sprinkle many nations. The kings shall shut their mouths at him, for that which had not been told them shall they see, and that which they had not heard shall they consider. Who hath believed our report? And to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, and as a root out of dry ground, he hath no form nor comeliness. And when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid as it were our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. 
Surely he had borne our grief and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him, Jesus, the iniquity of us, of us all. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shears is dumb, so he opened not his mouth. You know, as we consider these verses this morning, believe it or not, what I've just read to you this morning once again is one of the most concise and one of the most precise pictures of Calvary that we have surely in the Old Testament and perhaps in all of the Word of God. And yet the amazing thing about these verses that I've just read this morning is that they were written 700 years before Calvary ever happened. Talk about Bible prophecy. Talk about history that is being written before it actually ever happened. We have that in this text. What Isaiah and all the Old Testament saints look forward to see, you and I as New Testament saints, we look backward to see. What they look toward in Bible prophecy, you and I look back as a matter of Bible history. And yet you know that one of the greatest evidences that substantiates the validity of the Bible is fulfilled prophecies. One of the things that assures my heart that all the prophecies regarding our future will come true is because of all the prophecies that have dealt with past issues have already come true. I know the Bible is real because we have a book of fulfilled Bible prophecies. So once again this morning we approach this very sacred text. Almost as Moses on top of Mount Sinai, we ought to remove our shoes in this particular portion of God's Word. Because Isaiah, with the pen of inspiration and the eye of a prophet, lays out for us the details concerning Calvary. This is what is known in the Bible as one of the servant songs in the book of Isaiah. There are four of these servant songs in the book of Isaiah. Look back into chapter 52, verse 13, and it simply says this, Behold my servant. Now you ask any Jew what this text is about, they'll tell you that this text, Isaiah 53, is about the nation of Israel. They will go so far as to tell you this is a personification of the nation of Israel. They say the servant spoken of in this text is none other than the nation of Israel. But that's not true. The servant that is spoken of in this text that this song was written about is not the nation of Israel, the servant is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. You see, Jesus was not only God's son, Jesus was also God's servant. Over in the book of Matthew chapter 12 and verse number 18, the Bible said this about the Lord Jesus, Behold my servant in whom I'm, I've chosen, my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased, I have put my spirit upon him. So the servant spoken of in this text is the 
the Lord Jesus. We have an Old Testament chapter regarding what Jesus would do many years later at a place called Calvary. You know, I pointed out last week as further evidence to that, to that, to, to that truth that this text is about Jesus. We have almost a whole chapter in our New Testament about this text. Remember that old Ethiopian eunuch that was on his way back? He had been to Jerusalem for to worship. He had some questions about eternity and questions about his soul. So he, he couldn't find any help in all the gods or the, the, the cathedrals in the land of Ethiopia. So he makes the long journey across the hot burning desert to the city of Jerusalem. He's looking for some answers. He's searching for the answer for some questions that he has about life. But when he arrives at the city of Jerusalem, all he finds is magnificent edifices and ritualistic services. So he mounts his chariot. He's on his way back to the land of Ethiopia and his soul is still as dry and dusty as the dirty desert floor. And yet the Bible, unbeknownst to that old eunuch there in the land of Samaria, a deacon by the name of Philip has been in an old-fashioned Holy Ghost revival. I mean the power of God is moving in the land of Samaria and God reaches down and jerks that Baptist deacon up out of that revival meeting and sits him down out there in the middle of that desert so that the path of his life can intersect with the path of the life of the Ethiopian eunuch. And as Philip draws near to that chariot, he finds that old eunuch still with those questions burning in his soul. And he's reading from this text in the book of Isaiah, chapter number 53. And the old eunuch looks at the Baptist deacon and he says this right here. He said in Acts 8, 34, but the eunuch answered Philip and said, I pray thee. He's reading this, but he don't get it. He don't understand it. And he says, of whom speaketh the prophet? Of himself or of some other man? And I like what we're told in the next verse. The Bible said that uh, then Philip opened his mouth and began at the same scripture in Isaiah chapter 53 and preached unto him Jesus. Hey, can I tell you something, friend? This text is about none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the same Jesus that I'm declaring unto you. He's the same Jesus that I'm preaching unto you this morning. He's the suffering servant of the living and the true God. Now, if you'll go back to chapter 13 of the book of Isaiah, chapter 52, I'm sorry, verse 13 of chapter 52, you'll find out that it's almost like in verse 13 that the prophet Isaiah says, I want to cheer you up before the horrors of what's about to happen begins to sink in on you. It's almost like in verse number 13, Isaiah is telling us that what, is, what I'm about to tell you is so horrible. It is so fearful. It is so horrendous. But I got to tell you, before I even get started, everything is going to be all right. That's what verse 13 says. Look back at verse 13. Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. Now, we think the word prudent, we think of the word wisely. But that word really means successfully. He's going to deal successfully. He's going to be exalted and extolled and be very high. In other words, Isaiah said, it's going to get dark. And by the way, up dark Calvary's rugged hill walked my Savior under the weight of a Roman cross. What a dark hour. But the prophet said, I just want to tell you, before we get in the darkness surrounding Calvary, I just want you to know everything's going to be all right. He's going to be successful. He's going to complete God's plan. 
plan and God's will and the sun is going to rise again on the morning of the third day. He's going to be exalted. He's going to be extolled. He's going to be lifted up very high. And we know the Bible said that God hath given the name of Jesus. He's given unto him the name above every name. And that the name of Jesus, every knee is going to bow and every tongue. Sounds like God. Sounds like he's pretty successful. Sounds like God exalted his son after dark Calvary. So this morning, permit me, once again, leave your Bibles open. Let's go back and let's walk around Calvary for a minute. I want you to see, first of all, as we think about Calvary, I want you to see, number one, Calvary, how astonishing. Calvary, how astonishing. Look at verse 14 the Bible, of chapter 52. The Bible said, as Isaiah begins the events surrounding Calvary, he begins talking about how the Son of God was treated. In fact, he says there in verse number 14, he's going to be treated so, he's going to be treated so cruelly, he's going to be treated so brutally, that when people see him, they're going to be astonished at his appearance. Is that not what verse 14 says? The Bible said his visage is going to be marred more than that of any man. That word astonished, it simply means to be amazed or astounded or bewildered or confounded or flabbergasted. You see, Isaiah is telling us that Jesus is going to be beaten so badly before Calvary and on Calvary that in, in his facial features, in his appearance as a human being, he will not even have the appearance, he will not even look like a man. How astonishing it was to see the Son of God. You know, the pictures that we have of Jesus on Calvary is of him hanging there with a crown of thorns on his head and a little trickle of blood running down both hands and maybe dripping off of his feet. But ladies and gentlemen, according to the Word of God, Jesus didn't even have the appearance of a man while he was hanging on Calvary. He'd been beaten so badly, beaten so brutally. He'd been bloodied and bludgeoned. He had been spat upon by the Roman soldiers in so much that looking at him on Calvary, you would have to ask the question, is that a man? I mean, we would be astounded by how Jesus would appear on a place called Calvary. That leads me to make this statement, Calvary, how astonishing, how astonishing. But then we move now, we cross over into chapter 53. That leads me to say this, Calvary, how amazing, how Amazing. Look at verse 1, chapter 53. Who hath believed our report, and to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? It's amazing how that God, there at Calvary, God laid bare his holy arm. I told you last week, and maybe some of you weren't here, but I told you last week, the Bible tells us that when God created the stars and the planets and the galaxies, that it was the mere work of God's fingers. That's what the psalmist said in Psalm chapter 8, verse number 3. When I consider the heavens, the work of thy fingers, the moon and the stars, which that God said, you walk out tonight, if it's clear, look up there at all that. The Bible said God did all that with his fingers. God, the Bible said that when he brought the nation of Israel out of the land of Egypt and he brought them to the Red Sea and they parted and they went over on dry ground and then the armies of Pharaoh and the armies of Egypt followed them in and the waters came crashing down. What a mighty act of God. But the Bible said God did all that 
with just his hand. Back in the book of Exodus, chapter number 13 and verse number 3, the Bible talks about that God brought them out of the house of bondage by the strength of the hand of the Lord. But I find it amazing that when God came to Calvary, when he did his greatest work in providing salvation for the holy humanity, God just couldn't use his fingers. God just couldn't use his hand. But the Bible said that God laid bare his holy arm for his greatest work. Look back into chapter 15. And verse number 10, the Bible said that the Lord hath made bare his holy arm in the eyes of all the nations. God at Calvary did his greatest work when he laid bare his holy arm. Oh, I'm talking about how amazing that Calvary is. And it all began with God sending his son into the world. You know, a lot of times we talk about the cross and we magnify the cross and, sh and, and sh so should we. But really it's not the cross that made the cross special. You know, we know according to history, there were hundreds of thousands of people put to death by means of execution on the cross. They used the cross like we would use the lethal injection in our day, or at least we used to use that, or the electric chair or the gas chamber. The Romans used the cross, and there were hundreds of thousands of people put to death on the cross. But what made the cross so special to you and what made it so special to me was not just the wood of the cross. It was the person that was hanging on the cross. That's the reason Paul said in Galatians 6, 14, But God forbid that I should glory, saving the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Hey, I'll tell you what makes the cross so special. It's the person that was hanging on the cross and who he really was. Look in our text this morning at verse number 2. What a description of the one hanging on the cross. Notice, if you will, number 1, his humble beginnings. The Bible said in verse number 2, he shall grow up before him as a tender plant. That describes for us, that's an Old Testament way to describe the birth of the Son of God. He was a tender plant. Jesus didn't come into this world as a mighty king riding upon a white stallion demanding that all the people submit to his authority and bow to his superiority. No, sir, friend. He left heaven and came into this world as a lowly babe in Bethlehem. And the Bible said Isaiah saw him as just a tender plant. Just tender. Jesus, even though he was God when he came into this world, he was like a tender plant. He was so fragile. He was at the mercy. He was at the, uh, he was at the mercy of his mama and of his foster father Joseph. His humble beginnings. He was a tender plant. His humble beginning. Notice not only his humble beginning. Look again at verse number 2. Notice his heavy burden. Look, the Bible said he's going to be like a tender plant. And then it says this, as a root out of dry ground. Now that, ladies and gentlemen, is an indication of the heavy burden that our Savior would carry throughout his life here on earth. I mean, you know, it's hard enough to get a plant to grow in fruitful ground, especially a tender plant. You got to be careful with those tender plants. I planted some strawberries like an idiot this week because I know when I set them out, the deers are going to eat them all again. Uh, why in the world I do that, I don't know, but I saw them and I got them and I planted them. And uh, the tender plants, 
Uh, they're very tender, and you have to be careful because they're fragile. You can't put a lot of pressure on them. He, he came into this world, his humble beginnings, he was a tender plant. But when we read that phrase, he was a root out of dry ground, we know it's hard enough to get plants to grow in good ground. But when you get a root in dry ground, but then we read that he was a root out of dry ground, speaking of the hardness of, of his life. You talk about a hard and difficult life. The Lord Jesus didn't come in this world and fly through this world on flowery beds of ease. He was not pampered and petted through this walk of life. No, sir. Jesus knew what it was to be hungry. He knew what it was to be homeless. He knew what it was to be hated. He knew what it was to be heartbroken. He knew what it was to be humiliated. He knew what it was to be hurt. He knew what it was to be hit. He knew what it was to be harassed. If you've ever felt any of that in your life, if you've ever been hurt, if you've ever been heartbroken, perhaps you've been homeless, perhaps you've been treated badly, perhaps you've been humiliated, perhaps you've been harassed, I want to tell you, Jesus knows how you feel because he lived that way here upon this earth. We read about his humble beginnings. We read about his heavy burden. But then we read in verse number two about his hidden beauty. Look again what the Bible said in verse number two. He hath no form nor comeliness. And when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. You know, in our day, looks is everything. Appearance is everything. I mean, friend, uh, that's what's wrong with some of our teenagers today. Uh, man, they think that I got these blemishes and I got these flaws. I'm not as pretty as her, some young lady might say. I'm not as handsome or as muscular or as good looking as him, some young man uh, might say. But ladies and gentlemen, and, and we develop this inferiority complex because we've all got our flaws. My wife asked me the other day, if there was one thing you could change about yourself, what would it be? And I said, I'd want to be tall. I've hated all my life that I'm as short as I am. But then I read in the Bible, for all have sinned and come short. So I guess maybe I'm not in such bad company after all. But I would like to be about 6'9", and this crowd that's given me a burden throughout my entire ministry, I'd just run up to them and thunk them real good right on top of the head. But they think they can run over me because I'm small in stature. But I tell you what, I might be small in stature, but I sure do got a big heart, friend. But I would change that about me. I'd want to be tall. You you know, when Jesus came into this world, God didn't make him head and shoulders above everybody else like he did old Saul. God didn't make him ruddy and a beautiful countenance like he did little David. God didn't make him uh, handsome and, and uh, maybe as flamboyant as, say, somebody like Solomon. When Jesus came into this world, he didn't come into this world as an, as an out-of-the-ordinary out of individual. He was not above average. No, sir. He was just like you and me. He was just an ordinary person. When we see him, the Bible said, there's no beauty that we would desire him. I mean, when you saw him, by the way, God sure must love ordinary people. He made so many of us, didn't he? I mean, just ordinary. You know what? God loved us so much that he made his own son ordinary. You know why? Because none of us, some of us may have looked at Jesus if he'd have been real handsome and, and real muscular and, and very tall. Some of us probably say, well, he wouldn't love nobody like me. Look at how he looks. But God made him ordinary. You know, one of the words that describes the Lord Jesus coming into this world, in John 1, 14, the Bible said the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The Old Testament word tabernacled 
among us. I got to thinking, when you looked at that tabernacle in the Old Testament, there was nothing beautiful about that tabernacle made out of a bunch of badger goat skins. I mean, when you saw that building, there was nothing there that would cause you to be attracted to it. It was very homely looking. It was very average looking. I mean, just a pit, a tent pitched out in the wilderness with a fence around it. But ladies and gentlemen, the true beauty of that tabernacle was not what you saw on the outside. Bless your heart. It was what was on the inside. And when you walked into that holy place and you saw the gold glistening and smelled the incense and the table and all that, friend, I'll tell you, it was not what was on the outside. It was what on the inside that counts. And when Jesus came into this world, he took upon himself the form of an ordinary body. But I tell you, bless your heart, not even an ordinary body could contain the glory that was on the inside. Because on the top of the Mount of Transfiguration, there with Peter and James and John, the glory came bursting forth through the humanity. And he was revealed for who he was, the Son of the Almighty and living God. I'm talking about Jesus, friend. How amazing that he was, his hidden, his hidden beauty. I got to thinking about Calvary, how astonishing. Watch this now. Calvary, how amazing. It's not the cross, it's the one on the cross that makes it so amazing. God allowed his own son to come into the world for the sole purpose of going to the cross. How amazing. But there's a third thing in this text, and that's this, Calvary. How appalling. How appalling. Now, I've already told you how astonishing it was to see the Jesus that I've just described for you. How astonishing it was to see him hanging upon Calvary. Yet we come now to the verses that really describe how Jesus was treated on Calvary. The ones that he, very ones that he'd come to save, the very ones that he'd come to love, to demonstrate and manifest the love of God, how cruelly and brutally that they treated him. You talk about being hated. You talk about being hurt and hit and harassed, humiliated and heartbroken. That describes Jesus while he was there on Calvary. I got to thinking about this. Notice in our text the violence of the cross, the violence of the cross. Look at the words that we find in this text that describes Jesus on the cross. Look at verse 3. He's despised and rejected of men. Verse 4, he bore our griefs. He carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him. Notice these words, the wording, stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. Look at verse 5. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And by his stripes we are healed. Somebody said, preacher, why in the world would God allow that to happen to his son? I mean, we know God could have stepped in at any moment and just called the whole thing off. We know that. We know in the garden prior to ever getting to Calvary, prior to the beating starting. Jesus said, Thinkest thou not that I can pray to my Father in heaven, he shall presently give me more than 12 legions of angels. Jesus could have called the whole thing off before he ever got there. Why did he go through such a beating? Why did God allow his own son? Yea, why was God even responsible? 
for the beating, the bruising, and the bloodying of his own son. I'll tell you why. God was painting us a picture of what he really thinks about sin in the person of his son. God was letting us know that he is definitely. God was letting us know that he is directly. God was letting us know that he is destructively against sin. You know, in our day, I mean, we're church people for crying out loud. We don't, I hope we don't, go out and get drunk. We don't do stuff like that. At least I hope we don't. We don't go out and, and, and buy a pot on the street corner. At least I hope we don't. Hey, we don't go out and lay around and sleep around on our wives or our spouses. At least I hope we don't. You know, we got maybe a lesser kind of a sin. White lies. Uh, maybe some gossip. Maybe a use or a slip of a four-letter word every once in a while. Or maybe just a little bit of innocent flirtation with somebody down on the job. But I'll tell you, bless your heart, what God thinks about our little white lies. I'll tell you what God thinks about our gossip. I'll tell you what God thinks about our little bit of flirtation. I'll tell you what God thinks about a slip of a four-letter word every once in a while. If you want to know what God thinks about sin, all you got to do is look at his son on Calvary who doesn't even appear the form of a man who's been beaten to a pulp and God said there, there's what I think about your sin. In our day we laugh about it. In our day we joke about it. Hell is a cuss word. Laying around everybody's doing it. I mean man, this, that and the other. It's just the rage of our day. But ladies and gentlemen I just want to tell you God's never changed his mind about sin and if you want to see what he thinks about it look yonder to Calvary. The violence of the cross. But then I thought about this. What about the silence of the cross? Look again in this same chapter, verse number 7. And we read twice in verse number 7. He opened not his mouth. Two times in verse number 7. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. The last phrase of the verse says this. So he opened not his mouth. Not only the violence of it, but think about the silence of it. There's Jesus, God's Son, died on Calvary, paying the price for our sins. Not just the big ones, bless your heart, but those little white lies, that little flirtation, bless your heart, the slip of them little four-letter words. Hey, the little gossip that we are so freely pass around. I'll tell you, God bore all that in the person of His Son on Calvary, and God punished Him for that. Now think about what he could have said while he was there. In fact, I like verse 7 because there we're told that he was as a lamb. Stay with me for a moment. There are two great statements made in our Bible, one in the Old Testament and one in the New Testament about the lamb. That's right. Back in Genesis chapter 22, when Abraham's bound Isaac and carried him up on top of Mount Moriah and he's getting ready to kill him and Isaac looks at his daddy and said, Daddy, the wood for the sacrifice, the knife, it's all here, but Daddy, where is the lamb? Abraham spoke up and said, Son, don't worry about it. God's going to provide for himself a lamb. And we come across centuries of time, millennials of time, and in John 1, 29, John on the banks of the muddy river, Jordan River said, There he is. There he is. There the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. Yes, sir. Where is he? I'll tell you where he is. Look at Calvary. There's God's Lamb for our sins. Yes, sir. The silence 
of it all. He was a lamb. Notice in verse 7, he was a lamb led to the slaughter as a sheep before shears, so he opened not his mouth. I read this week about D.L. Moody. D.L. Moody went to the Armor Meatpacking Company when it was located near Chicago, Illinois, near the Moody Church. And he said he went there just to tour the facilities, the facilities of that meatpacking company. So he said on his tour, they took him in to where the, the, uh, the cows were being slaughtered. And he said as those cows were herded in and, and gathered into those garners where they would be killed, he said they were moaning and they were lowing as they marched to their death. He said they took him over to the, to the hog, the, the pig-killing factory, where they herded the, the pigs in to be killed. And he said those, as, those ki- as those pigs were being herded in for the slaughter, they were squealing out as they were led to the slaughter. Then he said they took me over there and, where they were killing the lambs and the sheep. And he said it was as silent as death as those little sheep were herded in for the slaughter. For the knife to be drawn across, he said they would open up their mouth as their juggler vein was split and they watched their blood pour out on the floor. They opened up their mouth. Boy, I got to thinking about how the Son of God and what he could have said when he was there on Calvary. He didn't have to say silent, but he could have spoke up and said, okay, you go ahead. You put me in the grave today. I'll put you in hell tomorrow. He could have said this. You go ahead and kill me today, but I'll kill you tomorrow. You go ahead and laugh at me today, but I'll have the last laugh. You go ahead and do away with me. You go ahead and let me be finished, but tomorrow you'll be finished. And yet he said none of that. Ladies and gentlemen, without a word of complaint, without a word of contempt, without a word of condemnation. He marched up Calvary's hill. Why? I'll tell you why. Because he loves sinners just like you and just like me. The silence of it. How appalling. How appalling that God's son would be treated in such a manner, yet he opened not his mouth. Aren't you glad we got a Savior that loves us that much? How appalling. How appalling for him to be treated like that. And yet God put his own son to death so he could demonstrate his love for you and for me. How astonishing. How amazing. How appalling. We got to go. But lastly, notice this Calvary. How appealing. How appealing. I don't know about you, but there's something, there's something attractive about that cross. That cross has a certain appeal to it. Maybe that's why the songwriter said this, that old rugged cross so despised by the world has a wondrous attraction for me. For the dear Lamb of God left his glory above to bear it to dark Calvary. There's something attractive, appealing about the cross. It was there on that cross where mankind did his worst, but it was there on the cross where God did his best for you and for me. Look at Isaiah 53, notice verse 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. Can I stop and say this? That's not a compliment. That's an indictment. You know why? Can I tell you, sheep are... Don't be mad at me. I'm just telling you the truth. Sheep are stupid. I mean, they can wander off, but they can't wander back. I mean, they can get away, but they can't find their way back home again. I heard about this math teacher one time, and she was trying to teach her math about subtract her class about subtraction. So she asked this one little boy, she said, okay, I got five sheep, 
Three of those sheep go astray. How many sheep I got left? He said, teacher, none. She said, no, 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 you're not getting it. I got five of them. And three of them go astray. How many do I have left? He said, you got none. She said, little boy, you don't know your math. He said, ma'am, you don't know your sheep. When one sheep goes astray, they all go astray. When one sheep finds a hole, they'll all find the hole. All we like sheep have gone astray. There's not a one of us in this building that need, didn't need a Savior. There's not a one of us in this building that can claim we deserve heaven on the merits of our own righteousness. But thank God, ladies and gentlemen, there was a lamb that left heaven, came into this world, and died on Calvary so you and I could make our way back to God once again. Amen. All we like sheep have gone astray. In the Old Testament, sheep died for the shepherd. But in the New Testament, bless your heart, the shepherd died for the sheep. What a Savior. What a Savior. I was reading this week, and I'm done. We got to go. But I was reading this week about, uh, again, another story about D.L. Moody. And he was, he was in a hurry to get away from a town. This man had come to the meeting the night before and heard Moody preach, but he didn't get saved that night. So, uh, so Moody was getting ready to board the train. The train was pulling. He was running to catch it. He caught it. And the man come running up and said, Moody, I want to be saved. I want to be saved. He said, he hollered, man, go home. Read Isaiah 53, verse 6. Go in at the first all and come out at the last all. Now, what do you mean by that? Read the verse. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. That's the first all. But the last all is this, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. You want to be saved? Go in at the first all. Acknowledge you're a sheep. Acknowledge you've gone astray. Acknowledge your lost condition. And bless your heart, you'll come out at the last all. You'll meet the one who bore your sins on the cross of Calvary, who paid the price. Surely he had borne our sins and carried our stars. Yet we didn't esteem him stricken and smitten of God and afflicted, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And bless your heart, by his stripes we're healed. Healing is in the atonement. But it's not physical healing. Bless your heart. It's spiritual healing. We all got a problem with sin. Praise the Lord. How appealing. Thank God for Calvary. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you this morning for the word of God. Thank you.